Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Palestinian protests clashes in Bethlehem as the regional rocket fire continues. Tesla torment, famed investor Michael Burry's big short, and a prime purchase, Amazon's reported $9 billion bid for MGM. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to the show, as always. And we begin with breaking news from the Middle East. Israeli media reporting that two civilians have been killed in a mortar attack near the border with Gaza, with rocket fire from the Gaza Strip also resuming after an overnight lull. Earlier, Israel imposed a partial closure on the West Bank amid Palestinian calls for day of demonstrations and mass strikes. Nick Robertson joins us now, Nick, and we're just showing our viewers earlier images of what took place in Bethlehem. Talk about what we saw and also what more do you have on this mortar attack? Yeah, well, the firefighters are right behind me here uh, putting out uh, the fires that, that this mortar attack uh, set off. Uh, it is the deadliest single attack so far by by Hamas or the militant groups from Gaza um, into Israel. Two people were killed here. Seven were wounded. They were all overseas workers who were working uh, in this agricultural area, this farm area around a small town here, right down towards the southern tip of Israel, close to uh, close to the border with Gaza. So um, mortar rounds, they don't fly as far as uh, rocket rounds. So this is relatively close, about nine and a half kilometers from Gaza here. The Iron Dome defensive system is not effective against mortar rounds. Uh, So these agricultural workers who were killed here today uh, perhaps uh, weren't uh, as aware as a lot of people will have been in other parts of Israel today of attacks coming in. Uh, Earlier on this afternoon in uh, Ashdod, a rocket managed to get through the Iron Dome system and struck an apartment building in in the middle of Ashdod. There were sirens going off there, sirens going off uh, in the town of Ashkelon as well. This does come after a relatively quiet night where... uh, there were very, uh, there were no sirens going off in the vicinity uh, 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 to to let people know that there were rockets coming out from Gaza between about 11:30 at night and about uh, 4 or 5 a.m. in the morning. But really, the tempo of rocket and mortar fire from Gaza has picked up today. And as you say, also uh, a, a national strike has been called uh, by Palestinians in the West Bank today to show their support for the suffering of the people in Gaza. Um, protests there uh, turning into clashes with police uh, in the West Bank. 
Yeah, Nick, I'm going to let you go there, and I apologise to our viewers for a, a bit of interference there. Stay safe, and we'll uh, come back to the story later on in the show. Nick Robertson there for now. And as always, we'll bring you the latest on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict throughout the day here on CNN. In the meantime, we'll bring it back to business and a pretty good picture for global stocks at this moment. Tech set to rebound, the German DAX also hitting record highs. As you can see there, it's only Tuesday, but already this week, AT&T has announced a massive media spin-off. We've got Elon Musk denying a Tesla Bitcoin sell-off and major U.S. retailers are saying their bottom lines are better off. We've got a lot to come on the show. Shares of Home Depot, Walmart and Macy's rising pre-market on strong quarterly results. Home Depot is saying they're seeing, quote, unprecedented demand. Walmart also raised its guidance and reported a stunning 37 percent rise in e-commerce sales. All the details on what they were saying coming up. But clearly all three still benefiting from COVID-related stimulus check spending and a benefit bump. The big question, of course, is what are they seeing in terms of product availability, potential shortages, and are they raising prices? And how easy or not is it to hire? As I mentioned, we will discuss. Also noteworthy today, Japanese GDP growth falling at a weaker than expected annualized rate of 5.1% in the first quarter as persistent COVID lockdowns batter growth there. And just released minutes of the Australian Central Bank's latest policy meeting show officials still ready to hold off on raising rates until at least 2024 at the earliest. Yes, you heard me right. And as we keep saying here on First Move, it's going to take much longer to normalise economies following those reopenings than it was to shut them down. OK, on to today's drivers and with the outlook for Tesla once again in the driving seat. Tesla tormented famed short investor Michael Burry has placed a sizable short position in Tesla stock. Burry rose to Wall Street fame by profiting from the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis. Claire Sebastian joins us with all the details. Claire, many a short seller has fallen foul of a position in Tesla. What more do we know about this guy? Because he has had some huge success in the past. Yeah, he's proved extremely prescient, uh, Julia. And this isn't a straight short. This is a, a put option. Here's a, a put option on 800,100 Tesla shares at a value of more than 530 million as of the end of the first quarter, so March 31st. So we can't blame the latest Bitcoin, Dogecoin, uh, SNL, even Antics uh, for this. But, but, but looking at the potential reasons behind it, he, uh, you know, he's, he's said in the past that he believes that the, that the Bitcoin share price is overvalued. He called it ridiculous in a since deleted tweet back in December and said at the time that he was short the share price. He advised Elon Musk uh, at the time to issue more shares because of, uh, of that share price. He's also in the past called out regulatory credits, the, the, these environmental credits that Tesla is able to sell to other car companies that have juiced their profits. Uh, so those are some of the things that he's been vocal about in the past. But of course, we know the context around Tesla's share price up some 740% over the course of 2020 has now been coming down. It's now down about 35% from its peak in January, about 25% in the past month. So it does look like he's had some success already in predicting the fall of Tesla, although we don't know at what price he's able to sell that option. I mean, it rallied eight times though last year. So to your point, it's a little blip here relative to the scale of the rise that we saw last year. What do we know about these tax credits? Because we often talk about this and how it's managed to help Tesla with profitability stats. And of course, several quarters of profitability is why they managed to get access to the S&P 500 too. Stellantis, which was formed through the merger of FCA and France's um, PSA. 
said this month, I, I believe, that they expect to re- achieve their carbon dioxide emission targets without having to buy anything from Tesla. What do we need to understand about these tax credits and why is announcements like this, why are announcements like this so important? Yeah, so Tesla has been able to benefit really quite quite uh, hugely from these credits. These credits, they operate in 11 U.S. states and other jurisdictions uh, like the EU and, and indeed China as well. And they basically set targets for, for car companies to produce a certain amount of zero emissions vehicles. Tesla, of course, produces uh, all zero emissions vehicles, so it gets a lot of credits and it's able to sell to other car companies who don't meet their targets so that they can sort of offset. In the last quarter, Tesla made more than 500 million from those credits. In 2020 alone, it made about 1.6 billion. So according to sort of a core measure of net income, it would not have been profitable without that. So that is something that a lot of Tesla bears are pointing to. Others, of course, say that its car business has been growing margins. So so it would be profitable without these credits. It really depends who you talk to when it comes to Tesla. Still remains an incredibly divisive stock. But the company itself has admitted that these are unpredictable uh, sort of elements of its balance sheet and it doesn't know how long they're going to last. So to your point with FCA, uh, there are unpredictable elements to this. It is a risk for the company that they will go away. Not to mention Bitcoin, talking about unpredictable elements of one's balance sheet, quite frankly. Uh, Yes, Elon Musk has been busy. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. Okay, let's move on. The iconic roaring lion entering prime time, perhaps? Amazon is reportedly in talks to buy MGM, the studio behind the James Bond and Rocky franchises. The report's coming just a day after CNN's parent company, AT&T, announced a merger of its media division with Discovery. And Brian Stelter is here with more. Brian, the news keeps flowing in this space, and I think we can expect it to. Jeff Bezos and crew casting a golden eye perhaps, on MGM? Oh, my God. Sorry. First you let out a roar. Then you go with golden eye. It's amazing. Sorry. Amazing. All right. <laughs> Can't help myself. I think it's so interesting <laughs> that this deal has been in the works for weeks, which means it predated yesterday's big news about Discovery and Warner Media. It just goes to show the deal flow, the amount of energy in the media and tech worlds right now, as everybody tries to leapfrog one another and come out ahead in these streaming Olympics. It's really remarkable. This report first crossed like, you know, 10 hours after the uh, the uh, Discovery Warner Media deal was announced. And you can see there's clearly some posturing and haggling going on. Some stories describing this as a $10 billion valuation. Others saying this movie is only worth 6 or $7 billion. Either way, we know Amazon can afford it. The question is whether Amazon is to go ahead and pull the trigger and actually bring James Bond and Goldeneye and these famed films into Amazon's uh, collection. It's also, it's all about having that content library, isn't it? And you and I were discussing the sheer quantity of spending that Discovery and Warner Media is going to take this year, comparing it to the likes of Netflix. I believe it's yeah. around $11 billion in content production for Amazon. They need, or Amazon Prime, they need that library of resources to fall back on to the point about giving consumers choice and making them come to you and stick with you. Yeah, and Amazon's a unique company in these streaming Olympics because, you know, it's all within Amazon Prime. Some people right. uh, subscribe to Amazon Prime, never actually watch any movies or TV shows, but others very much love the portfolio programming that Amazon provides. So it's kind of an opaque business. We don't know a ton about how Prime Video functions or how many people watch, but 
from all outside signs, it's a big priority for Jeff Bezos and for the senior leadership because they are pouring money into Amazon Prime Video. They are making more and more shows, including a massively expensive Lord of the Rings series. So to do this deal with MGM would be another sign. Look, Amazon rarely makes acquisitions that are this size, right? We know Whole Foods went for $13, $14 billion. If Amazon ends up paying 7 to $10 billion for MGM, that would be a remarkable move by Amazon, even though, again, they can afford it. It would be another statement about how they want to compete in what one analyst calls a streaming arms race between Netflix, Amazon, Apple, and all the rest. Yes, act quick before the sky falls. Sorry, that was not Oh, there it is again. I was trying. (laughs) I I still can't get over the roar, but that's just me. It was a little one, though. Brian, thank you. Brian Stalter. I'm not doing it again. All right, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. President Joe Biden says the U.S. will share an additional 20 million COVID vaccine doses with countries around the world by the end of June. That's on top of the 60 million Washington already promised. The U.S. has one of the most successful vaccination drives in the world, but other countries are struggling. In Africa, less than 2% of people have received even one dose. For more, we're joined by CNN's Larry Madoo. Larry, fantastic to have you on the show. The statistics there, I think, say it all. In the United States, we're creating lotteries, $1 million lotteries to get people to take a vaccine. And in where you are and you're part of the world, a fraction of people, vulnerable people, still haven't even got a look in. That's correct, Julia, because Kenya only got 1 million shots of the of the COVID-19 vaccine. This is the AstraZeneca shots from COVAX, which is this World Health Organization body helping low and middle income countries get vaccines and they don't know when the next shot is coming. So this is what hospitals around the country are doing. This is an oxygen production plant at one private hospitals here in Nairobi. They're doing this because when Kenya had a third wave back in March, they didn't have any oxygen and it was so bad. There are people that died because hospitals just could not treat them because oxygen is so critical in the treatment of patients who have COVID-19, as we've been seeing from India. But the other big concern is with Kenya having used up more than 91% of its available vaccines, if there is another wave, there will be a real crisis here in the hands of the country. And I've been speaking to the chairman of the Kenya Healthcare Federation that represents all the private health institutions in the country. This is what he tells us about where Kenya is and with the fear. March was a bad month. Easter was a terrible period to my staff and I because all of us were oxygen oxygen shopping. That was the primary job the entire management in this place was doing. We are looking for oxygen and we are looking for critical care beds, ICU beds, because Nairobi ran out of ICU beds. Oxygen was in short supply. So that is what we are focusing on doing. We are simply trying to make sure that we do not go through that kind of crisis again. Dr. Kanyenje Gakombe there, he is the CEO of this hospital in the Eastlands neighborhood of Nairobi, that they have imported this equipment. The elements, this, for instance, came from Germany. Some of this equipment back here came from the U.S. They flew it in so that they're prepared in case there's another surge in the country with so many people unvaccinated. They're ready. So I am fully vaccinated. That's only because I've been living in the United States. My grandmother, who's 96 and lives in the west of Kenya, has still not been vaccinated, Julia. That is a crisis. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. It's not good enough. The whole world needs to be listening to this and to understand that more support's required. Um, and your, our hearts go to your, to your grandmother. Larry, talk to me about the hospital specifically, because that is fascinating. And I can't help but compare to India that got so caught off guard in the last 
several weeks. This is a hospital that's going, you know what, we're not going to take any chances. How many people can be treated? What more can you tell us about the preparations that they've made? Because these oxygen containers vital and could be incredibly vital going forward. It could be, especially in this neighborhood where a lot more people just did not have the ability to go to more expensive hospitals. They went to great expense to import this and fly them into the country instead of the usual longer shipping process, and they're piping it into hospital beds. It's a small community hospital, about 140 beds, and when they have excess capacity, they will be sharing it with other hospitals in this neighborhood and in this region. And some other government-run hospitals are trying to do the same. The government of Kenya gave them a waiver on all the equipment importation just so that they realize how critical this is for the country and how very few people are vaccinated. This is one of the ways to do that so that if there's that fourth wave that is being predicted for Kenya somewhere around July or August, as, as, as many hospitals as possible are prepared to deal with it because if there's a massive surge, Julia, the country's healthcare system can just not deal with it and you will see the same kind of heartbreak you've been seeing in India. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought us that story in, Larry. Fantastic to have you at CNN. Huge hug. Welcome, my friend. Larry Madowo there. Okay, thank Thank you. you. Let's move on. Okay, as India fights a brutal wave of COVID infections, now this, the strongest cyclone on record hit India's west coast, slammed into Mumbai and surrounding cities on Monday night. At least 26 people were killed. Search and rescue operations are underway at sea for missing Navy personnel. More than 6,000 migrants have turned up on a beach in the Spanish enclave of Ceuta in northern Africa, including children. The migrants have been swimming from two beaches in Morocco, The Spanish government says nearly 3,000 migrants have already been sent back. Spain's prime minister has vowed to reinstate order. Okay, still to come here on First Move. Cut all spending to new fossil fuel projects to hit 2050 climate targets. So says the International Energy Agency. We take a look at their ambitious plan. And Masterworks says you can own a Warhol without paying millions. We talk to its CEO on the model revolutionizing the art market. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The U.S. major still on track for a higher open as retailers Walmart, Home Depot and Macy's all boost guidance. And we've got consolidation talk heating up in the media space as discussed too. Robust retail earnings, though, playing into the strong U.S. growth scenario that's putting upward pressure on oil prices. Oil pulling a little bit back in the past few minutes, actually relatively unchanged, but Brent still flirting with $70 a barrel. ExxonMobil shares, meanwhile, now up more than 50% year-to-date. That's some recovery. Now, as the race to contain climate change grows ever more urgent, you may wonder how it can ever be done. How do we cut emissions by enough to reach those carbon-neutral targets? Well, the International Energy Agency just published a detailed and highly ambitious plan. It says the path to net zero in 2050 leads through 400 milestones that require the transformation of the energy industry. Just to give you a sense, the recommendations include no more investment in new fossil fuel supply projects. The sale of passenger cars powered by combustion engines must stop by 2035 and the rollout of solar PV generation must step up four times from the current pace. Joining us now is Safati Burol. He's executive director at the International Energy Agency. Sir, fantastic to have you on the show. I have to say, I've read the report late last night, I have to say, and it was daunting. This is a huge mission if we're going to achieve 
net zero by 2050. Uh, you are completely right. And many thanks for uh, reading the report yesterday, Not uh, Much appreciated. Uh, it's a daunting task. And it, is, uh, it requires the transformation of our energy system that we have built uh, since uh, centuries in a very short period of uh, time. And here, of course, the governments around the world are in the, the driving seat. We have seen in the President Biden's uh, leaders' summit uh, only a few weeks ago that the governments around the world have committed, most of the governments, to have a carbon neutral economy by 2050, which is a must to save our planet. What we have done, we translate that target to the real action. What needs to be done to reach that target, reach that commitments the governments uh, uh, have uh, talked about it in the climate uh, summit of the, uh, President Biden and uh, at different fora. And uh, we came up with some of the milestones that some of you have uh, kindly uh, spell out. And uh, to be honest with you, when I look at the numbers, uh, our report, the pathway uh, to reach uh, those targets is very narrow, but still achievable if we move quickly and in bold terms. What I loved about the report was precisely that, that you actually made it practical. You said it's OK making these grand statements about what you're going to achieve over the next 15, 20, 25 years. But let me just put it into actual action. And I mentioned solar for a reason. The solar requirements that you're talking about require or are the equivalent to installing the world's current largest solar park every single day between then and now. It's unimaginable it is a tall order it's a, i completely agree it's a tall order but this is what needs to happen if the governments uh, honor their commitments uh, this is the uh, this is the way it goes and i can tell you that the when we look at around the world the capital is available to make this happen Technology, bulk of the technology is available today. Some of them are under development. This is also there. What needs is that all governments around the world need to come with a roadmap or pathway uh, for the domestic, their domestic energy sector, which are uh, hopefully compatible uh, with our global uh, roadmap. So uh, the issue is, I am very happy the commitments coming from the governments, but I would be happier if I see what are the credible energy policies to reach those uh, targets? Unfortunately, I should say, uh, most of the governments, if not all, have not made their uh, homework yet. I mean, to your point, and this was another thing that hit me square between the eyes, in 2050, almost half the technologies that we require are only in experimental phase. I mean, what kind of financial investment are we talking about requiring at this stage in order to boost the R&D and be in a position where we're even capable of tackling this? Because it's, it's surely not something that individual countries need to tackle alone. We need a collective force. Everyone needs to be discussing this. And the biggest players, most of all, China, the United States, India, for example, critical, Europe. Uh, you are completely right, and uh, congratulations to you. While you read uh, uh, yesterday night, the I report, really did. You have highlighted <laughs> the key key points. It's a key point here. Congratulations for that. Now, we have uh, already some technologies, clean technologies, which are available in the market, such as solar, such as wind, such as electric cars, such as energy efficiency. 
first of all, we have to make the most out of them. But this is not enough, even if we make the most out of those, because there are some applications, energy we use, for example, in aviation, in iron steel, you cannot run them with wind. You have to find new technologies, and here, such as the advanced battery technologies, hydrogen solutions, for this, we have to mobilize incredible amount of investments. Today, just to give you a ballpark, today the global entire world energy investments is at the, are about two trillion US dollars for coal, oil, renewables, efficiency, about two trillion. And it has to go, uh, go up to five trillion uh, US dollars. Big surge wow. in the investment is uh, needed. And once again, the capital is there. What is needed is that the governments should give an unmistakable signal to investors that you, if you invest in these technologies, you will make money in the future. This unmistakable political signal will be uh, very important to mobilize investments in advanced economies, but more importantly, as you just uh, highlighted, in the emerging world, such as Indonesia, China, in India, and uh, others, where the bulk of the emissions in the future uh, will come from. The, the capitals there, it's the commitment, I think, is the point that, that's exactly. required here. But what about the security challenges, too? I mean, the IEA was saying, what, a week or so ago, that you're recommending that nations stockpile some of the resources that are required for electric cars, for example, and the uh, battery technologies in order to smooth their production capabilities going forward. I mean, that sets up potential supply challenges. We're already seeing bottlenecks. And then also in that vein, I think if you're asking nations to transition away from fossil fuels, you're going to have the power of the production concentrated in a very small proportion of countries in the world. If I look at OPEC nations, for example, and how do they manage their economies as we transition away? I can see challenges here, pushback. Yes. Yes, in fact, when we uh, prepare our report, we not only uh, uh, um, uh, prepare the pathway to reach the climate goals, but at the same time, uh, the energy security issues have been taken into consideration and the economic implications. When it comes to energy security, you mentioned uh, two of them, very critical. The first, if we build so many electric cars, uh, solar panels and uh, wind, they do not need oil, gas, and coal, but they need lithium, cobalt, magnesium, mm. different type of uh, 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 critical material, materials, we call it. And they are currently concentrated on a very few number of countries. But the potential deposits are everywhere in the United States, Canada, Australia, Europe. Governments need to, uh, need to uh, uh, provide incentives uh, for the miners and the others in order to uh, increase the production of these critical materials. And I think U.S. Department of Energy is uh, making serious efforts there. This is number one. Well, number two, I think it is an energy and uh, beyond that a geopolitical issue. What will happen in a net zero world, which means emissions going to uh, uh, zero and the fossil fuel use diminishes to the countries whose economies are closely if not exclusively linked to oil and gas revenues. We see a huge decline in their incomes in those countries, in Middle East, in Russia and elsewhere. Right. And uh, in most of those countries, population is growing and the young population is growing. It's a major issue. The message is clear. Diversify your economies as soon as possible. Yeah, there's no time like the present. And you also 
and we've run out of time, but you give a snapshot of how good it could be in 2050, and that's that energy demand is around 8% smaller than today, but it serves an economy twice as big, and 90% of electricity um, generation comes from renewables. So, fingers crossed. Patty, yeah. great to have this you. This is the energy efficiency. Energy efficiency <laughs> is very, very It's all on paper. Cool. Now we need it in practice. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Fatia Birol there from the International Energy Agency. Great to chat to you. You're watching more First Move, more to come. Welcome back to First Move and to more breaking news from Israel now. At least two civilians were killed and several others injured in Israel in a mortar attack. Meanwhile, Israel has stopped trucks carrying international aid to Gaza following mortar attacks on the crossings. Elliot Gotkin joins us now with more. Elliot, what more can you tell us about that international aid suspension? It comes at a time when reports suggesting medical supplies in Gaza, fuel, water are all running low. So, Julia, yeah, so um, humanitarian civilian aid was uh, being allowed through the Erez crossing in the northern part of the Gaza Strip uh, when, according to the Israeli Defence Forces, the IDF, uh, a mortar round landed nearby and shrapnel from which injured a soldier who was uh, taken to hospital. Separately, there were more uh, mortars fired uh, in the surrounding region from uh, the Gaza Strip into Israel, um, and one of them scored a direct hit on an agricultural packaging factory. Uh, that resulted in the deaths of two 30-year-old men, according to the ambulance service, Mug and David Adom. Uh, they're believed to be uh, foreign agricultural workers in Israel, and there are about half a dozen injuries as well. Uh, and this is a, a slightly interesting because we've seen, the, according to the IDF, the uh, Iron Dome aerial defense system able to take out around about 90%, 9 in 10 of the rockets that it wants to take out. Uh, it can take out mortars as well, but given the shorter range and the shorter length of time that these are in the air, it is much harder for them to be uh, taken out. And so this may be uh, a slightly different tactic from the part uh, of the militants, but it's certainly one that from their perspective uh, seems to be uh, perhaps having more success. Elliot, what are people saying to you there? How frightened are they that this continues for some more days for, for the foreseeable future? And, and what do they think about hopes for a ceasefire? I think Israelis within Israel are obviously, you know, concerned and, and some of them are scared when having to uh, run to the shelters. We had to do so about three times this afternoon when another barrage was being fired into Israel. Uh, but I think at the same time, uh, for now, most Israelis, uh, you know, would want to uh, see the outcome of this uh, latest flare-up, uh, latest confrontation result in, you know, a long period of calm and an ability to, to not have to worry about uh, these rockets uh, going forward. Uh, there are reports on uh, Israeli TV that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has spoken to local mayors saying that this could go on for a, a few more days. Uh, but, uh, you know, for now, unfortunately, Israelis are kind of uh, used to this uh, happening every few years. And no doubt when there is a ceasefire this time round, uh, this, things will flare up again in a few years' time and the cycle will continue. Yeah. Elliot, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Elliot Gotkin. Okay, up next, famous artworks for a fraction of the price. Speak to the man who says you too can own a Basquiat, or at least a little piece of it. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move and an uncertain start to the trading day on Wall Street with U.S. stocks losing a lot of the gains that we were seeing pre-market relatively unchanged, perhaps inflationary concerns. Take a look at what we're seeing in the commodities market. That rally still going strong with gold, in fact, rising to fresh four-month highs. Lumber, however, continues to pull back from records. Wow down some 14% in the session so far today. Also, a volatile day in crypto land. Bitcoin a little softer, but gains for the likes of Ethereum, as you can see, Litecoin and XRP also seeing bumper gains in the session. Tesla, meanwhile, extending losses, suffered yesterday on news that well-known short seller Michael Burry has taken out a half a billion dollar options bet against the EV giant, better known for subprime mortgage short fame. Now, major U.S. retailers, Home Depot, Macy's and Walmart now trading mixed despite posting strong Q1 results with all three retailers raising guidance. Walmart CEO saying U.S. customers, quote, clearly want to get out and shop. Paul and Monica joining me now. Paul, what's the standout from these results beyond the fact that all of these guys have benefited during the pandemic period? I guess the outlook and what happens from here on out is the critical part of this. Yeah, I think Walmart and Macy's had a pretty robust outlook, which is clearly encouraging. And obviously, as well, consumers are you know, eager to get back out there and shop, but they are also still digitally inclined as well. And you see that clearly with Walmart's numbers, their uh, you know, uh, e-commerce retail, uh, revenue up about 37%. So that is very strong. Of course, Walmart, a very viable competitor to Amazon. One thing I'd point out, though, the Macy's numbers, while good, are still below 2019 levels. So I think we have a tale of two retail kind of earnings here. Walmart and Home Depot legitimately are crushing it. They are doing well. Macy's is still a turnaround story. Things are getting better, but they're still well below where they were before the pandemic. Yeah, I saw Walmart talking about pent-up demand um, continuing to drive sales going forward, whichever part of the business that we're talking about, Paul. But for me, the key thing is pricing pressures. What are they saying about potentially raising prices and also seeing input price pressures? But also what happens now that we've seen the CDC in the United States remove that mask mandate? I saw also at Walmart talking about demand for teeth, tooth whitening treatments as well as people start removing their masks, which made me laugh. What did we see on that front yeah, beyond, uh, beyond the toothpaste? Yeah, a potential uh, you know beneficiary of uh, people starting to smile again and not necessarily needing to cover up their uh, mouth with a mask. I think inflation, though, obviously is going to remain a major concern for many retailers. You already pointed out, Julia, how lumber prices have been pulling back a little bit, but the surge in lumber is something that has impacted you know obviously the broader housing market with regards to new home construction, but it also been, has been a boon. For Home Depot, uh, you know, lumber sales, one of the main things that have helped drive revenue for Home Depot. Of course, this is a company that's doing well broadly as many consumers hunker down in their homes, even if they're not looking to sell and do some improvements. We'll probably get some good results from Lowe's tomorrow morning when they release their latest results as well. And we shall watch for that. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. Okay, now to a company applying the stock market model to the art world. Whether you dream of owning a Basquiat, a Warhol or a Banksy, Masterworks has found a way to make that dream come true. 
at least in part. It buys blue chip art worth millions and then sells shares to many different investors. When the art is then resold, each investor gets a fraction of the profit. Masterworks charges an initial 10% fee, an annual administrative fee of 1.5% and a 20% cut of the profit when the painting is resold. Joining us now is Scott Lynn, founder and CEO of Masterworks. Scott, great to have you with us. It's a democratising access, I think, to the art market, at least as an investment. Did I get all the financials right there because that sounded pretty complex <laughs> yeah you you uh, you did get them right um yeah so we've just been seeing a huge amount of investors interested in investing in art particularly with with inflation concerns right now so um as governments are printing money and as, are pe- as people are looking for different ways to invest um art is becoming one of one of the hot topics so what's my minimum investment if i want to buy a fraction of a painting yeah, you know, we, we don't actually tep- typically have minimums. So investors go to our website, they request access, and they speak to uh, someone on our membership team. So minimums range anywhere from $500 to $25,000, depending on the size of a portfolio and the investor. And can I actually see the art? Or are you tending to see people that sign up to do this? It's To your point, it's not really about having access to the art itself and viewing a beautiful picture. It's about the potential financial rewards of an alternative asset like art. Yeah, so today we, we really, I mean, in a, in a COVID era, we have a gallery in Soho, but we're not we're not hanging that many paintings. Um, we do have paintings that are on loan to uh, institutions or museums. And so we, we have a Banksy painting right now uh, with a museum in the Netherlands. Uh, but generally, the, the, the paintings are not are not on display. And when do you actually get payout? Because if you hold this painting for, say, five years, I was just trying to do the maths. Um, I guess my fee is going to be... One and a half percent times five plus the twenty percent take of the profit. So I'm going to pay you twenty-seven and a half percent of whatever the upside is. Well, not 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 quite right. So it's it's twenty percent of the profit. That sounded a lot. Um, Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I think I think the math is wrong there. But um, but but generally, if you look at the contemporary art market overall, it's appreciated fourteen percent a year uh, for the past twenty-five years. So it's one of the best performing asset classes. It's beat the S&P, it's beat real estate, it's beat gold. Uh, we did a, a research project with Citigroup, effectively concluded that it was uncorrelated asset asset class. So we fundamentally believe that it has a role in, in any portfolio. Um, you know, the, 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 the way that liquidity works is we buy the painting, you invest in the painting, we hold the painting for seven to 10 years, ultimately sell it. But we do have trading markets now where people are trading shares and paintings just like they trade shares and companies. Um, so if you need interim liquidity, the, the trading markets are there. Wow. I mean, that was a great return. You can correct me on the mass. Let's say you hold a picture for five years and then you sell it. What is my fee on that final sale? And how are you working out the return on these things? Because surely it depends how great you are at picking art and that actually that art increases in value versus decreases. Because a lot of this art is worth nothing in five, 10 years rather than making a profit. Yeah, you know, it's really so the paintings that we're buying, these are these are multi-million dollar paintings, right? So our, our least expensive paintings are a million dollars, our most expensive paintings are fifteen or twenty million dollars. Um so they they definitely are in the in the you know the top end of the art market. Um our management fees are very straightforward. They're one and a half percent per year plus twenty percent of the profit when a painting sells, which is very similar to, to venture capital or private equity. Um right. but you know, this this is an asset class that's still still very early. I mean, it's it's $60 billion a year that's traded between ultra high net worth 
individuals, right? F effectively billionaires in many cases. So it's never it's never been democratized. People have never had an ability to invest invest in it until now. So how much art have you bought, say, in 2020? And what do you plan to buy this year? Because you describe yourselves now as a sort of big power player in the art market. You buy a lot of art. Yeah, I mean, we, we think we're probably the number one buyer in the art market now. This year we'll buy three to $400 million in art, um, which for the, the art market is, is sizable. Uh, the business is growing more than you know 300% a year at this point. So we're, we're just seeing tons of demand from investors interested in allocating to the asset class. What do you make of what's going on in the art market? We've just had the Christie sales and the Sotheby sales. What did you make of what we saw there? Yeah, um, you know, so last week there there were um, there there were there were sales at, at uh, the two main auction houses, which is the first time we've actually actually seen lots of activities since COVID. Uh, there was a Maria Therese Picasso that sold for 103 million dollars. Uh, Basquiat had his second most expensive painting ever sell for 93 million dollars. You know, fundamentally, art prices continue to go up despite COVID, despite what's happening with with uh, macro dynamics. Forty percent of that, though, I saw it. Um, Christie's was guaranteed to ensure that they sell. And there were relatively fewer lots compared to previous years. And admittedly, we're in a pandemic. But that, to me, suggests an element of caution in the market, too. Is is that not what you're seeing? Also, That's not what we're seeing. I mean, we, we have the only the only research team that really analyzes returns in the art market. So we're, we're very specific about trying to understand how artist markets are appreciating. And, and independent of, of all of the dynamics, COVID, volume, etc., we, we continue to see prices go up. Talk to me about NFTs, Scott. Nine CryptoPunk <laughs> portraits ended up selling for $17 million. What do you think yeah. of NFTs? Yeah, I mean, as you can as you can probably see my body language, I'm I'm hedging. So we we you know we we don't we don't know how to think about NFTs from from an investment perspective. Um, you know, we 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 were very close to the Beeple sale, which which was a sixty million dollar digital image that effectively sold at Christie's. You know, we have difficulty understanding that. We don't view NFTs as investments. I I, I know a lot of a lot of reviewers will probably disagree, but but fundamentally, when we think about investments, we think about um, risk-adjusted returns. We think about lots of historical data. You know, the art market, the world that we live in, has been around for for centuries. Sotheby's is 275 years old. So this this NFT craze, if you can call it that, is you know is a blip in the the overall history of the art market. Uh, my understanding is the prices of NFTs have now have now come down, and that market is is quieting. Um, but I I, I I struggle to advise on how to how to think about that from an investment perspective. <laughs> I think some of your investors will perhaps be glad about your honesty uh, with regards to not being sure <laughs> how to define it, quite frankly. Very quickly, I know you've, you've not been around that long. 2017, I believe you started. What return have you provided to clients so far? Can you can you give us a sense of that so far, annualized? Yeah. Sure. So our, our annualized cash and cash returns right now, net of fees uh, is is roughly thirty two percent. That's a very a very high number. We you know we don't we don't expect sort of return thirty two percent obviously into the future, um, but that those are our cash on cash returns at this point. How interesting. Um, yeah, beats the S and P five hundred over that time certainly. Scott, great to have you with us, Scott Lynn, founder and CEO of Masterworks. Thank you for that. All right, coming up. Turns out the stuff of science fiction isn't always fiction. The US military acknowledging some UFO sightings are the real deal. Stay with us. That's next.
Welcome back to First Move. Now, here are some non-fungible tokens or NFTs in the making. These images are truly out of this world. Encounters could well be their own NFTs as the Pentagon confirms the authenticity of videos and photos of UFOs. Oren Lieberman has all the details. An object skimming the surface, apparently at high speed, when... Bullseye, the aircraft sensors home in on the, the, the thing, the unidentified flying object. It's one of a few videos of these UFOs the Pentagon confirmed as authentic. You know, I think that over beers we've sort of said, hey man, if I saw this solo, I don't know that I would have come back and said anything because it sounds so crazy. Your mind tries to make sense of it. I'm going to categorize this as maybe a helicopter or <laughs> maybe a drone. And when it disappeared, I mean, it was just... Alex Dietrich has never told her story publicly. She's one of several Navy pilots who spoke with 60 Minutes who've seen or picked up on sensors similar objects, often moving fast with odd shapes and no obvious method of propulsion. There's definitely something that, I don't know who's building it, who's got the technology, who's got the brains, but there's, there's something out there that was better than our airplane. No one is using the word aliens here. The Pentagon calls them UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Pilot Ryan Graves picked this up on his infrared sensor in 2004 off the coast of San Diego. So look at that thing. It's rotating. The highest probability is it's a threat observation program. Could it be Russian or Chinese technology? I don't see why not. Late last year, the Pentagon created a task force to look at the nature and origin of UAPs. What are these things? Where do they come from? And is there an intent here? The government sees this as a possible threat, something that may be able to outperform military capabilities. Lawmakers are demanding it be treated seriously. We have uh, things flying over our military bases and places where we're conducting military exercises, and we don't know what it is, and it isn't ours. So that's a legitimate question to ask. If it's something of outside outside this planet, that might actually be better than the fact that we've seen some technological leap on behalf of the Chinese or the Russians or some other adversary. Next month, the Director of National Intelligence and the Defense Secretary are scheduled to deliver an unclassified report on UAPs to Congress. Former Director of National Intelligence James Clapper applauds the transparency, but isn't expecting too much yet. I expect this report will be filled with ambiguity as well, and people, uh, depending on their leanings, will extract what they want out of this report. For years, the government and the military largely downplayed or ignored reports of UFOs. Now, the Pentagon's handling of these reports is under its own investigation. The DOD Inspector General announcing earlier this month that it will look at how the Pentagon handled reports of UFOs in the past. Orrin Lieberman, CNN at the Pentagon. Just wow. Okay, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next, and I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. 
Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.